Australia's Catherine Mary Knight has deservedly earned her place on this depraved roll call of humanity. Until March 1, 2000, Sleepy Aberdeen situated on the New England Highway, 266 kilometers north-northwest of Sydney. Population 1,750 was best known as the birthplace of the Blue Heeler Cattle Dog, the canine icon that is as much a part of Australian folklore as the emu, koala, and kangaroo. But not anymore. These days, Aberdeen is known as the home of Catherine Knight, arguably the most depraved monster in Australia's grisly homicidal history. Visitors to Aberdeen are now far more interested in ogling the single-story three-bedroom bungalow at number 84 Andrews Street, where murder and other unspeakable acts took place, and pondering what would cause the middle-aged housewife, mother, and grandmother to perpetrate such evil. Catherine Mary Knight was born half an hour after her twin sister Joy at Tenerfield Hospital in northwestern New South Wales on October 24, 1955. Her mother Barbara already had four boys, Patrick, Martin, Neville, and Barry, by a previous marriage and another son Charlie with Catherine's father, Ken. Another son, Shane, would follow in 1961. When Barbara's previous marriage broke up, the two older boys, Patrick and Martin, had stayed with their father, Jack Rufin and the two younger lads, Neville and Barry, went to live with an aunt in Sydney. When Jack Rufin died in 1959, Patrick and Martin went to live with their mother. Ken Knight was an abattoir slaughterman who traveled with his family throughout Queensland and New South Wales, applying his back-breaking trade in 12-hour shifts at Wallangara, Gunada, Tenerfield, and Moree, and wherever the work was to be found. Ken and Barbara and their six children eventually settled in Aberdeen in 1969, where there was steady work at the local abattoir. From all accounts, young Catherine was a loving little girl who was kind to animals. And her only brush with retribution was as a 13-year-old when she appeared before the children's court on a minor charge and received a good behavior bond. Given her lifelong environment, it's hardly surprising that all Catherine Knight wanted to do when she grew up was to work in the abattoirs. In every town she had ever lived in, there was a meatworks. To her, the thick afternoon waft of the remains of the day's kill as it was rendered into tallow must have smelled like French perfume. At sixteen she joined her father, twin sister Joy, and brother Charlie boning out carcasses at the Aberdeen Abattoir. In the predominantly male domain, Catherine became as tough as the best of them and gave as much as she got in the boning floor jargon that would make a wharfy blush. She was renowned for not taking a backward step, and with her knife in hand she'd challenge anyone who offended her to armed combat to abruptly sort the matter out. No one ever took her on. Catherine's proudest possession was her set of razor-sharp boning knives which she kept in pride of place above her bed so she could have one last look at them at night before nodding off to sleep, no doubt to dream about killing animals and carving up their remains. Given her future violence, it would be fair to say that it was this period in her life that played a major role in the molding of the monster that Catherine Knight would become. In 1973, Catherine fell in love with 22-year-old truck driver David Kellett, and as soon as she turned 18, she moved in with him. In 1974, they were married. A local rumor was that Catherine attempted to strangle her husband on their wedding night, when he wouldn't repeatedly make love to her. Later in their marriage, Kellett worked at the abattoir with Catherine and was in charge of killing the pigs. From time to time, she would drop in and watch him at work dispatching the animals with a stun gun. Shortly after their first child, Melissa Ann was born in May 1976. 
Kellett, unable to cope with his wife's possessiveness and violent, moody behavior, took off with another woman. Deeply depressed and revengeful at her spouse's departure and with no one to take her grievances out on, Catherine Kellett chose the closest thing to her. One day, shortly after David had left, she walked down to the local train lines and left two-month-old Melissa in the middle of the tracks to be run over by the next train that came along. Fortunately, the infant was rescued by a man foraging nearby who heard her crying. Later that same day, Catherine took an axe from a nearby backyard and swinging it wildly about her head, threatened at random to kill several people, including an old man. She was apprehended by police and taken to St. Elmo's Hospital in Tamworth, where she was diagnosed with postnatal depression and released. A few days later, Catherine slashed the face of a woman she knew with a butcher's knife while demanding that she take her to David Kellett in her car. Bleeding profusely, the woman only escaped when she pulled into a petrol station. When the police responded to a frantic call from the petrol station owner, they arrived to find Catherine holding a little boy by the front of his shirt and waving a knife in the air. The officers managed to drag the terrified child away by attacking Catherine with a couple of brooms that were handy and grabbed her when she dropped the knife and let the lad go. On the recommendation of a local doctor, she was admitted to Morsey Psychiatric Hospital for treatment and detained under supervision while her baby daughter was placed in the care of her grandparents, Barbara and Ken Knight. Police notified David Kellett, who was working as a truck driver in Queensland, that his wife was locked in a psychiatric ward under heavy sedation in the most notorious mental institution in New South Wales. With his mother, Jean, Kellett drove the hundreds of kilometers to be with his troubled wife, who sparked up the minute she saw him. On August 9, 1976, Catherine was released into the care of her mother-in-law on the condition that Jean sees to it that she takes her medication. They collected little Melissa along the way, and within a couple of weeks Catherine and David were back living together in a rented bungalow in Woodridge in Queensland, where David drove trucks and Catherine took a job boning at the Dinmore Meatworks in Ipswich. The reunion turned out to be stormier than ever, with Catherine regularly flying into violent rages over nothing in particular, assaulting her husband with her fists, kitchen appliances, and anything else she could lay her hands on. Yet. Astonishingly, on March 6, 1980, they had another daughter, Natasha Mari, and then, one day in 1984, as if in answer to David Kellett's prayers, she was gone. He came home one night from work, and the house was bare. Catherine had packed up her two daughters and everything that wasn't nailed down and moved back to live with her parents on their farm outside of Aberdeen. Back working at the Aberdeen Abattoir and having resumed her maiden name, Catherine Knight didn't last long down on the farm with the folks and soon moved out with the children to a rented property in nearby Musselbrook. A year later, her back gave out due to constantly bending over the carcasses at the abattoir, and she had to give up working altogether. The government found her a housing commission house in Aberdeen, which suited her because it was closer to the kids' school, and they could walk instead of having to be driven every day. With a pension as income, all the tall, thin, attractive 30-year-old Catherine needed was a man. After several unsuccessful relationships since the breakup with her husband, Catherine clicked with Dave Saunders in a local hotel in 1986. Saunders, a 38-year-old miner from nearby Scone, was considered a good bloke whose only problem was that he liked to drink and spent most of his time at the hotel getting a skinful. 
For all her clandestine shortcomings such as attacking people with knives, fists, and kitchen appliances, Catherine had a cheery and charming exterior, and the ruggedly handsome Saunders was smitten. The fact that she had a voracious sexual appetite was the icing on the cake. Things went along lovingly for a few months. Dave Saunders kept his apartment at Scone and moved in with Catherine and her two daughters. It didn't take long for the green-eyed monster to come out in Catherine, and she was constantly falsely accusing Saunders of having affairs with other women. From then on, they were always at each other's throats. Catherine would throw her man out of her house, but before he reached his place in Scone, she would be knocking on the door, begging his forgiveness and asking him to come back, which he always did. It wasn't long before the fights got violent, with Kath, who was taller than Dave, attacking him with her fists and boots. In May 1987, she let him know what would happen to him if he ever played up with another woman by slitting his two-month-old pup's throat from ear to ear with a boning knife, before taking to him with a frying pan and bashing him into unconsciousness. But despite all of this and Catherine's continuing bizarre behavior, which included a suicide attempt, Dave's love proved unfailing, and in June of the following year, Kath gave birth to her third child, a girl they named Sarah. With the arrival of the new baby, a calm settled over the little family of the mother, three girls, and the de facto father, so much so that Dave put a deposit on a tiny house in Aberdeen, which Kath paid off in full when her workers' compensation came through in 1989. Considering that, outside of her children, the tiny two-bedroom weatherboard house on McQueen Street, Aberdeen, was the first real possession that the feral Catherine Knight had ever owned in her life. It's hardly surprising that she decorated it the way she had always dreamed of, with her passion, dead animals. The walls were covered in cowhides, water buffalo and steer horns, old-fashioned fur wraps, cow and sheep skulls and deer antlers. Prominently displayed was a stuffed peacock and baby deer. Among the other bric-a-brac adorning the walls and hanging from the rafters were a huge wooden fork and spoon, rusted animal traps, leather coats and motorcycle jackets, a rusted rake and pitchfork, a riding boot and crop, and a saddle. Every available space was filled with old newspapers, clothes, and books. The extensive video collection dealt predominantly with horror and death. It was a museum of Catherine Knight's fantasies. There's no place like home. But as blissful as it was in paradise, what with the new baby and the new house filled with Catherine's treasures, predictably it didn't last. In the new bout of exchanges, Kath battered Dave over the head with an iron and allegedly stabbed him with a pair of scissors. When he returned to the love nest after a week in scone, after a horrific fight, he was invited in only to find that she had cut all his clothes to shreds and taken them to the rubbish tip. This time, Dave Saunders decided he'd had enough. He took his long service leave from the mines and gave all of his old drinking haunts a miss. Despite Kath's frantic efforts to find him, she had no luck. His mates knew where he was, but they certainly weren't going to deliver their mate back to the dreaded missus. Running into brick walls everywhere, eventually she gave up. Months later, Dave returned home to McQueen Street to see his daughter, only to find that in his absence, Kath had gone to the local police and told them that she was terrified he would return and bash her. She got the cops to issue an apprehended violence order against him to legally keep him away from her and the kids. It didn't take Kath Knight long to find another lover, and a few months into the relationship she was pregnant. The father was a local knockabout, John Chillingworth, 43, who worked at the Aberdeen Meatworks, and the baby, a boy named Eric, 
was born in 1991. Kath's erratic on-again, off-again style saw to it that the relationship only lasted three years. The locals were amazed that it even lasted that long, and ended acrimoniously when Kath Knight dumped Chillingworth for John Price, an Aberdeen local she had been having an affair with behind Chillingworth's back for some time. Although distraught at the time, as it turned out, the spurned John Chillingworth was the luckiest bloke on the planet. He would overcome his broken heart, get off the booze, and do something constructive with his life. But by taking up with the Wicked Witch of Aberdeen, John Price had signed his own death warrant. From all accounts, John Pricey Price was a terrific bloke who'd give you his left arm if you needed it and was liked by everyone who knew him. He'd been married and had three kids when the marriage broke up in 1988. His wife took the youngest, a two-year-old girl, when she left, and he ended up with a teenage boy and girl to look after. He owned a three-bedroom brick bungalow on St. Andrew Street in Aberdeen and brought home a good salary from working in the local mines. Pricey met Catherine Knight at a local hotel in 1993, and at 38 they were the same age, and it wasn't long before they were an item around town. He went into the relationship with his eyes wide open. He had heard all the rumors about the way she treated her men but chose to ignore them. The relationship started out the same as all of Kath's previous liaisons. She was the devoted, loving spouse who cooked and sewed and picked her man up and drove him home from the hotel when he couldn't walk. Plus, she was hot in the sack. His kids got along famously with her brood and life was a bunch of roses. But it didn't take long for the cracks to show. The accusations of infidelity, the fights, separations, and the inevitable getting back together. In late 1995, Kath moved in with Pricey at the family house on St. Andrews Street. It must have seemed like living in Buckingham Palace after her crammed little cottage with the dead animals on the walls. The drinking escalated, and so did the fighting. They could be seen at each other's throats in the street outside the front of their respective houses, and at any of the local hotels where they drank. It was all fun and games one minute, and they were giving each other a gob full the next. In 1998, Kath showed Pricey's bosses at the mines a videotape she had secretly recorded at home of some items that Pricey had allegedly stolen from work. Kath maintained that she recorded the tape as revenge over a fight about his ongoing refusal to marry her. They had come to blows, and he had belted her. She had planned on showing the tape to Pricey to use as blackmail against him, but after another horrendous fight, she decided to go one step further and show it to his employers. Although the items on the tape were past their used-by date or considered to be rubbish and scavenged from the company tip, it was enough to get Pricey sacked from the job that he had loved for 17 years. The same day, Pricey booted her out of his home and she fled back to her tiny chamber of horrors in McQueen Street. The story of her viciousness spread through the tiny township like a bushfire fanned by gale-force winds. Given her track record, it didn't surprise a soul. When Pricey took Kath back a few months later, though he didn't move her back into his house, he lost a lot of friends who now wouldn't have anything to do with him when she was in his company. Their fights resumed with renewed venom. They would get drunk and argue over her getting him sacked from the mine. Then it was on for all to see. It was plain to even a deaf and blind mute that while they couldn't live with or without each other, that something awful was going to give. It was just a matter of time. It wasn't long before Kath had free reign of Pricey's house again, but it didn't help matters in the least. 
The arguments escalated in violence, and after a series of assaults which included Catherine stabbing him in the chest with a knife during an argument in the kitchen, on Tuesday, February 29, 2000, John Price went to the Scone Magistrate's Court and took out an apprehended violence order against Catherine Knight to keep her away from his house and hopefully out of his life once and for all. But AVO or not, there was no stopping his deranged lover. The same night as he had taken out the AVO, John Price was in bed at 11 after visiting his neighbors when a vehicle pulled into his driveway. Kath entered the house, watched TV for a few minutes, and had a shower before joining Pricey in bed. They had sex. Police officers made the following report after arriving at the house the next day. About 6 a.m. on Wednesday, March 1st, a neighbor noticed that John Price's work utility truck was still at his home. This appeared unusual as the victim normally had left for work each day prior to this time. This neighbor became concerned as did the employer of the victim who was by this time making inquiries as to why the victim had not attended work. Attempts were made by the neighbor and another friend to wake the victim by knocking on his bedroom window. The neighbor and friend then went to the front door where they saw a small amount of blood on the wooden exterior. Police were contacted and attended about 8 a.m. The police at the scene forced entry into the house through the rear door. Upon entry, the police located the victim's exterior layers of skin hanging from a hook in a doorway, arch into the lounge room. They then located the victim's decapitated remains on the lounge room floor, near a small foyer leading to the front door. A further search of the house by the police resulted in them locating Catherine Knight, who was snoring loudly in a comatose condition on a double bed at the end of the house. She was removed from the house immediately by police and later conveyed to hospital by ambulance. The following account is the complete report by crime scene investigator Detective Senior Constable Peter Anthony Muscio, who was the first officer on the premises after the initial discovery of John Price's body. In cases such as this, it is the detective's job to piece together the macabre facts firsthand from the evidence at the murder scene before anyone else touches a thing. About 10 a.m., Wednesday the 1st of March 2000, in company with Detective Sergeant Neil Raymond, I attended the premises at 84 St. Andrews Street, Aberdeen, in relation to an alleged homicide. There I spoke to a number of police, including duty officer Graham Furlonger, Detective Sergeant Bob Wells, and Senior Constable Michael Prentice. The premises is a single-story, three-bedroom dwelling that faces generally south onto St. Andrew Street. The premises were built towards the eastern side of the block, leaving a grassed area on the western side where three vehicles were parked. These vehicles consisted of a white Toyota four-wheel drive, a white Ford sedan, and a white Toyota Land Cruiser utility. There were two galvanized steel garn sheds in the rear yard, one at each rear corner. There was also a brick barbecue against the eastern boundary. The dwelling had a full-length veranda across the southern side and a smaller veranda central to the rear of the premises. My attention was drawn to a piece of cooked meat on the rear lawn in front of the white Ford sedan. I made an examination of this piece of meat and collected it for further testing. During my examination, I took a series of photographs of the premises and the piece of cooked meat on the lawn. I entered the premises to conduct a cursory examination with Detective Sergeant Raymond. I walked in through the rear door and into the kitchen. Once inside the kitchen, I saw a large section of what appeared to be human skin hanging from the top architrave of the doorway leading into the lounge room. 
This piece of skin extended from the top of the doorway right to the floor and appeared to be an entire human skin. Looking through this doorway into the lounge room, I could see a headless and skinless human body. I walked east along the hallway and looked into the entry foyer and saw an extreme amount of blood pooled on the floor. There was also a large amount of blood smearing over the eastern wall of the entry. I walked further east along the hallway and noticed some blood staining leading from the main bedroom. In this bedroom, I noticed more blood staining, however, only moderate amounts. I then left the scene and had a discussion with Sergeant Raymond and other investigating police outside the scene. I then re-entered the premises and made a more detailed examination. The rear door of the premises opens into the laundry. Off the western side of this is the kitchen dining room. The laundry contained a stainless steel tub in the northeast corner and a washing machine further south along the eastern wall. There was a built-in cupboard in two separate wooden louvered doors in the southern wall of the laundry. On the western wall of the laundry was a cavity sliding door that gave access to the dining room and kitchen. The room was divided into two sections with the kitchen being the western end and the dining room being the eastern end. The dining room contained a wood and steel dining room table which had three matching seats placed around it. There were items of clothing draped over the backs of each of the three chairs. On the dining room table were a tool bag, some clothing, a small blue folder, an electronic toy gorilla, and some prescription medicine boxes. I noticed blood staining to the shoulder area of a blue shirt that was draped over the chair on the western side of the table. The medication on the table consisted of three boxes of Felidur ER5MG of which two were empty. This medication normally contains two strips, each containing 15 tablets. However, there was only one full strip containing 15 tablets. There was also one empty box of Prinival 20 tablets. An empty box of Dopatabs was also on the table. This medication, when full, contains 90 tablets at 2.5 milligrams. The fourth chair of the set was against the northern wall under the bench portion of the breakfast bar. I took a series of photographs of the dining room. The kitchen was in the east portion of the room. It consisted of a kitchen bench with overhead cupboards along the eastern wall. About central to this bench was an electric cooktop that had a baking dish and an aluminum boiler on it. Along the southern wall was a wall oven, and further east was a two-door built-in pantry and a freestanding fridge. Along the northern wall was another bench that incorporated the sink, and further east was a breakfast bar that protruded from the northern wall south into the kitchen and divided the kitchen and dining room. As mentioned earlier, I saw what appeared to be a complete human skin or pelt hanging from the top architrave of the door separating the dining room and the lounge room. On closer examination, I could distinguish black curly hair at the top, a nose, and part of the mouth and ear. About halfway down the pelt, I could see a clump of short black curly hair consistent with pubic hair. I could not recognize any other particular features as they continued to the floor. The edges of the pelt were incised indicating to me that it had been removed with a sharp instrument. There were also a number of distinct stab wounds to the pelt, about a meter down from the top. The pelt was attached to the architrave by a stainless steel meat hook. The hook was pierced through the top of the head area of the pelt and then hooked over the architrave on the lounge room side of the door. The skin appeared to vary in thickness from approximately 1 to 4 centimeters. 
I noticed a blood trail leading from the lounge room into the kitchen towards the kitchen cooktop in the vicinity of the aluminum boiler. The boiler was on the right side rear element, which was at the time turned off. When I lifted the lid to the boiler, I noticed it was warm to the touch. The pot was full of liquid and on the surface I could identify a skinned human head and a number of cooked vegetables. On the northern side of the aluminum boiler, I saw a baking dish that was sitting across the right front side element. Inside the baking dish, I saw an amount of liquid and the remains of baked vegetables. Just to the right or northern side of the cooktop, I saw two prepared meals. Each of the meals consisted of two pieces of cooked meat, baked potato, baked pumpkin, zucchini, cabbage, yellow squash, and gravy. Underneath each of the meals was a torn section of kitchen paper with a name written on it. The word Beaky was written in blue ink pen on one of the pieces while the word Jonathan was on the other. The pieces of meat that appeared on the plates were similar to the piece I collected from the rear lawn. On the section of the kitchen bench across the northern wall were a number of items of interest. On the western end of the bench I saw a green electric jug with blood stains on the handle. In the sink I saw an orange colored vegetable peeler and vegetable peelings from potato, pumpkin, zucchini, and onion. On the eastern side of the sink, I saw a cream-colored microwave dish containing cooked cabbage leaves and a clearish liquid. In front of the microwave dish, I saw a brown-colored coffee cup that was sitting on a wooden cutting-up board. Inside the coffee cup was a teaspoon and a small quantity of thick brown liquid similar to gravy. There was also the residue of the gravy-type substance on the cutting board. Just to the right of the cutting-up board was a yellow-handled Swebo knife and two forks. The handle of the knife was blood-stained. On the eastern side of the breakfast bar I saw a small black-handled knife that was stained and four empty medication blister packs. One blister pack was labeled Luvox and had 15 tablets missing. Two blister packets labeled Aripax had 10 tablets missing from each packet and the blister packet labeled Promethazine had 20 tablets missing. I saw a blood-stained gray coffee cup that contained a white fatty substance. There was also an empty Two Hayes brand beer stubby, a packet of Winfield Red cigarettes, and a black wallet belonging to the deceased on the bench. On the western side of the breakfast bar, I saw a Norton brand, Bench Stone, Sharpening Stone. On the southern side of the cooktop on the bench against the western wall of the kitchen was a microwave oven. In front of the microwave were the remains of a roll of paper towel and a blue plastic lid. This lid fitted on the microwave dish that was on the kitchen sink. I also noted that the microwave door was open and the courtesy light was on. On the cork-tiled floor of the kitchen at the southwest corner of the kitchen bench, I saw a blood-stained bare footprint. This footprint was from the right foot of a person and at the time the person was standing adjacent to the kitchen bench with the right foot facing north. I noticed the blood-stained fridge on both the handle of the door to the fridge section and the eastern side of the unit. The staining to the door handle contained some ridge structure and was in a position consistent with opening the door with bloodied hands. There were also smears on the eastern face of the fridge and lower down, staining from droplets of blood that had come in contact with this surface. As mentioned earlier, the lounge room was off the southern side of the dining room, the two rooms being separated by a cavity sliding door. On the eastern side of the lounge room was an opening of 1.6 meters wide which gave access to the front entrance of the premises. 
The lounge room contained a single-seat lounge chair in the southeast corner, and further west against that wall was a three-seater lounge suite and another single lounge seat in the southwest corner. From this corner, north against the western wall was a slow combustion heater and another single lounge chair. Along the northern wall from the northwestern corner were a large wooden display cabinet, a smaller display cabinet, the doorway to the dining room, and a single lounge chair in the northeastern corner. The skinless and headless body of a person now known to me as John Charles Price was in a supine position with his legs protruding into the entry foyer from knees down. There was a substantial amount of blood smeared over the carpet around the body. As mentioned earlier, there was also an extreme amount of blood pooling on the floor of the entry foyer. In this blood pool and staining were marks where the body of the deceased had been dragged about one meter from the middle of the entry foyer onto the carpet in the lounge room. The deceased was laying on his back with his legs crossed at the feet. The left ankle was on top of the right. His left arm was extended and out from the body at an angle of about 45 degrees. Under the left wrist of this arm was an empty plastic 1.25 liter Shelley's Club lemon squash bottle. The right arm was also extended and lying alongside the body. On the floor, adjacent to the right arm of the deceased was a blood-stained 31 centimeters yellow plastic-handled knife. The blade of this knife was 17.5 centimeters long. The body was virtually devoid of skin and flesh, exposing the muscles and some organs. There were a number of wounds present on the body, one of the most obvious being a stab wound to the left side of the chest which extended into the chest cavity. As stated, the body had been skinned in a manner that leads me to believe that the person responsible would have had skill in this area. From the blood staining on the carpet, I was able to determine that the deceased had been skinned prior to being decapitated. There was a definite outline of the head in the blood staining on the carpet. Examination of the neck region of the deceased indicated that the head had been removed very carefully and cleanly with a sharp instrument. On the seat of the single lounge chair in the northeast corner of the room, adjacent to the shoulders of the deceased, were a black-handled honing steel and an opened packet of Winfield Blue cigarettes. I also noticed bloodied handprints on the back and arms of this chair. On the northern wall on the western side of the door to the kitchen was a small display cabinet. Lying on this cabinet was a broken picture frame containing a picture of the deceased. Lying on top of the picture frame was a blood-stained watch. To the west of the photograph, still on top of the cabinet, was a blood-stained handwritten note together with another broken picture on top of it. Apart from being blood-stained, it had small pieces of flesh on it. The note was poorly written and contained very basic spelling mistakes. It read, Time got you back for abusing my daughter. You to Beck for Ross, for Little John. Now play with Little John's penis, John Price. These allegations were baseless. It was evident to Detective Muschio that Catherine Knight had murdered John Price, skinned and decapitated him and cooked his head, and served it and portions of his buttocks. The pieces of meat in the backyard also proved to be from the victim's buttocks, on plates for herself and his two children for dinner, when or if they returned to the house at some time. Given that Price's son and daughter, the Beck and Little John mentioned in the note, were away from the house when the murder occurred, it seemed hardly likely that they would be returning for a meal at a prearranged time. Detective Muschio also said, I remember walking down the hallway and, at about shoulder height, there were all these blood splatter marks on the walls. To me, it's indicative of each attack. 
He's absolutely fighting for his life. The guy just had sex in bed and went to sleep. When he wakes up, then stab, stab, stab. He's getting up. There is arterial spurting on the robe in the bed. And on the doorway there's a bloodied handprint or swipe on the western side of the door near the dressing table. And blood around the light switch. It looks like he tried to turn the light switch on. And then all down the hallway, there are bloody handprints everywhere. And he's almost made it. He's opened the front door. The screen door is shut. There is blood staining, trajectory again, flicking out across the front door. He's almost made it, but he wouldn't have survived. He would have been absolutely horrified, terrified, probably terrified more than horrified, trying to get out and all the time being stabbed. An autopsy revealed that the victim was dead when he was skinned. A razor-sharp knife had been inserted just under his collarbone and sliced horizontally across the top of the body from shoulder to shoulder right under the clavicles. It was straight, clean-cut, and anatomically precise. Then the knife was turned and cut down the chest and over the stomach to the pubic hairline and made into a T with another straight line. Tracing the knife tip around his pubic area and careful not to cut his penis or genitals, the killer cut down the front of John Price's thighs, over the knees and to his feet. The killer then moved up the body, held his arms up, and cut down the back of each one and across the top of the victim's head. The killer then peeled the victim's skin off, including his head, his hair, his face, and all the way down the length of the body to the feet exposing the victim's intestines. The entire skin was in one piece, including hair, face, ears, nose, mouth, genitals, and complete stab holes and dripping in blood. Hanging from the S-hook in the doorway, the feet were dragging on the ground, the killer then removed the victim's head clean at the C3 and C4 junction, right at the top of the shoulders using a very sharp knife. The cut was precise and clean. The killer would have been covered in warm, sticky blood. According to forensic pathologist Dr. Timothy Lyons, who performed the autopsy, the whole procedure would have taken about 40 minutes. Despite intensive questioning, Catherine Knight denied having any recollection of what happened that night after she arrived at the house and had sex with her lover. Having recovered from her alleged suicide attempt a week later, on March 6, 2000, Catherine Knight was charged with John Price's murder at a special bedside sitting in the Maitland District Hospital's psychiatric wing. In a bizarre twist, it was discovered that after she had allegedly murdered her lover, Catherine had gone into Aberdeen and withdrawn $1,000 from John Price's bank account from an automatic teller machine. At her trial in October 2001, Catherine Knight saved John Price's distraught family from the ordeal of having to hear all the evidence by pleading guilty. According to court-appointed psychiatrists, she was perfectly sane when she committed the crimes. On November 8th, Justice Barry O'Keefe sentenced Catherine Mary Knight to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. The judge said that her papers were to be marked never to be released. She has since appealed the severity of the sentence. It is open to debate as to whether or not Kath Knight ate parts of her lover after she cooked his head and slices from his buttocks. It was hard to say if all the pieces of John Price were accounted for. To this day she maintains that all she recalls of that night is that they had good sex. Then she remembers that Pricey got out of bed to go for a pee and she watched him come back into the bedroom. After that she presumes that she fell asleep and that was that. 
The general consensus of opinion, and in this case everyone seems to have one, is that she ate part of John Price, and found what she did so abhorrent that she chose to block it out of her mind. In Silverwater Women's Correctional Center in New South Wales, Catherine Knight works as a cleaner. Although she is a good cook, it is highly unlikely she will ever get a job in the kitchen. She is now 67 years old.